Welcome once again to the monthly BV Magazine podcast, your genuine slice of rural Dorset life. This is episode two for June 2023. Hello from me, Terry Bennett. And hello from me, Jenny Devitt. In this episode of the podcast... We'll hear something of the Fern Animal Sanctuary and its history from its CEO, Kevin Hodges. We'll have the second of my interviews with Sherborne Antiques dealers who've recently appeared on national television. And CEO of the Gillingham-based Guild of Fine Food explains why he's critical of the Farm to Fork Summit held at Number 10 Downing Street last month. First, here's Jenny's interview with Kevin Hodges. You may or may not have heard of the Fern Animal Sanctuary, based just to the west of the Somerset town of Chard. But that's not where it started life. It all began just as war was threatening. CEO of the Fern Animal Sanctuary, Kevin Hodges, talked to me about what the sanctuary does and gave me something of its history. It started in 1939, uh, following a broadcast that uh, Lady Nina, the then Duchess of Hamilton and Brandon, had done live on BBC Radio. Um, And it started effectively in her London home, Uh, that same night on the 28th of August but very quickly so many animals were surrendered to her that uh, she set up the kennels and the cattery in uh, Fern Estate which is on the Wiltshire and Dorset border and they used that estate and a nearby airport hangar uh, to start it all off uh, in late 1939. Uh, and of course, uh, the the reason that people would have wanted her to look after their dogs was uh, uh, because of uh, the imminence of war, the Second World War, wasn't it? And they were worried about them. It it was, it was absolutely. And uh, uh, Lady Nina was already active in um, animal welfare areas, um, and she already worked um, in the safeguarding and the uh, care of of animals. And what had happened was that it had become obvious to Lady Nina that people going off to war, uh, as well as animals being displaced by bombing, um, would have such an adverse impact upon animals that she put out this call uh, for people to provide free accommodation. And she stressed that it must be free. And as I said, immediately people were surrendering animals to her from across London, but also the southern counties. So she was uh, prepared to finance this, uh, the the care of these beloved pets herself. She was, and uh, she quickly built up a team together with her superintendent at the time, lady uh, called Molly Atherton. And they were tending the dogs and the cats, but also horses and other animals Uh, that came to be surrendered and rescued by Fern Animal Sanctuary. And in those first six years of World War II, from 1939 to 1945, it's estimated that approximately 6,000 animals were saved uh, from as far west as cities like Bath and Bristol, uh, all the way across, as I said, through the southern counties to London and the southeast. And, and, you know, it was interesting, isn't it, that they should be taking them to London, which, which of course, was a, a target for German bombers. Uh, you, you would think that you would not want to be heading, um, say, east from Bath or Bristol and taking your beloved pet all that way um, into potential danger. Well, by that time, um, Lady Nina and her team had set up 
uh, a small fleet of trucks and buses and she wrote out directly to the various powers that be including uh, the leaders of the city of Bath and um, any time that there was a, a bombing or a significant displacement of animals um, she made it clear that they could contact her directly and they would send out this small fleet of trucks and buses from the Fern Estate in Wiltshire and go and pick them up and bring them back to safety direct. It was extraordinary because, you know, many people I'm sure would have said, um, well, this is a very low priority, rescuing animals, uh, people, people's dogs and cats, um, when we, we are much more concerned about uh, saving human lives. It, it, it is amazing. And part of the reason why Lady Nina uh, and her team reacted in the way that they did was because prior to her announcement on BBC Radio, um, there had been uh, effectively a notice that went round the country uh, that preempted the war starting, that preempted the idea of food being rationed, and effectively stating that uh, un unless you have the and you're confident that you have the wherewithal to look after all of your animals, um, whilst whilst being mindful that you must look after yourselves, it may be best to consider uh, euthanizing those animals. Uh, and it's believed that over those early months of 1939, approximately three quarters uh, of a million animals uh, did did perish because of that. Uh, so but to move on to um, rather more cheerful things. Um, so it, it started out in London, then moved to Wiltshire, uh, to the Fern Estate, where obviously you get your name. Um, when did it move to your current location, uh, west of Chard? Yes, so um, it became a registered charity in 1965 and 10 years after that, in 1975, uh, it moved from the what is now Fern Park over to, uh, to Somerset and a 52-acre farm had been, uh, had been purchased for that purpose. So why was the move necessary, Kevin? Well, effectively, the cost of running the uh, Fern estate uh, and following the death of Lady Nina um, had become uh, had become too much. And uh, the uh, move to a place uh, where it could be focused solely on uh, the rescue and the well-being of the animals was thought at that time uh, to be the best. Why this particular location was chosen? Uh, I do not know the answer to that. Uh, I presume, can only presume, that at the time they were looking out for anywhere in the south that had sufficient acreage for them to look after what we now have on site, which is roughly 300 animals. And and the, the original house on the Fern Estate, the Duchess of Hamilton's house, um, no longer exists, I gather. So that was, yes, correct. That was the second property on that estate that fell into disrepair was uh, then uh, demolished and a brand new property was built and is now the home of Lord and Lady Rothermere. To look back uh, over the the history of the sanctuary since it's moved to Chard in 1975 what have been some of the highlights Kevin? Well it, it's it's one ongoing highlight to get one's head around just how many animals Fern has rescued over the past eight decades plus uh, and we estimate that to be around about 40,000 
uh, animals uh, over that time. We have, of course, since uh, affected various areas of the farm uh, and in that time added uh, another 20 acres to make it 72 acres in total here. We've added all sorts of grazing stock. We've got cattle, we have pigs, goats and sheep, of course, as well as our equine. And all of those will spend their time, the rest of their time here at Fern. Uh, and we, we uh, rehome approximately 300 uh, dogs and cats e each and every year. In the teens, about uh, 2015 and 2016, it opened our new uh, kennels, uh, which has heated floors for uh, the warmth of the dogs. And we've also, uh, since that time, opened a brand new isolation unit for uh, our cats so that when the cats come in and they have to be uh, separated before they could be put with the other cats so that they're tested we have a, a an up-to-date isolation unit for the cats we have created uh, a brand new educational corner our new arts and crafts center to educate children on animal welfare which opened last year and we have our own pet store on site uh, alongside our uh, conference room and we also have a, a cafe that is open 365 days of the year that sits independently, uh, as does the pet store, uh, to people visiting the sanctuary, um, which has been made completely 180 degree turned around in March of this year with all of these new aspects added to it. So we get about 10,000 visitors every year. We're aiming to increase that and would love to move that up to about 20,000 over the next two to three years. And and you those um, uh, live what are regarded as livestock animals that you were talking about earlier pigs and so on these are all rehomed are they yes they are they're surrendered to us either from uh, local farmers or smallholders and uh, we will look after them here rather than them go uh, to slaughter uh, we will look after them here on our land for the rest of their lives. Is it predominantly dogs that you rescue? Uh, dogs are, as I said, surrendered to us and rehomed at a rate of, let's say, about 100 to anywhere between 100 to 200 each year, as are, as are the cats. Uh, and the dogs uh, do not stay here forever. So we're constantly looking at rehoming for the dogs. The vast majority of our cats will be rehomed. There are some resident cats who, who effectively, as cats do, roam around the sanctuary and treat it as their place rather than anybody else's. Uh, we also rehome some of our uh, equine uh, as well. Uh, but the rest of the animals, as I said, the, the, they will stay here for forever, including the four tortoises that we have and the small and furries that we have as well, including um, ferrets and chinchillas and rabbits of course and guinea pigs so permanent home for them but um, I'm, I'm, I imagine that uh, that um, a covid a lockdown uh, must have proved challenging for you I mean a lot I know that rescue centers up and down the country have had to take in a lot more um, animals either abandoned or otherwise um, uh, post-covid than than before was that the case for the fern animal sanctuary Yes, I think it's fair to say that not just in Fern, not just in the southwest, but across the country, supply of dogs being surrendered outstrips the demand to take them in. 
um, and outstrips the amount of space that there is available to take them in. Uh, I started with Fern in April of last year, so I've seen the effect of coming out of lockdown post-COVID and the pandemic. Um, and certainly my team are experiencing more behavioural issues with dogs where they haven't been socialised outside of their immediate family. They haven't been out as much as they perhaps would have done beforehand, uh, where people have now returned to work or moved away from working so much at home. And this has meant more being surrendered. Um, and whilst I think it's fair to say that still a lot of dogs are rehomed within a certain period, let's say anywhere between one month and three months, um, that there are more outliers of certain dogs now where there are a handful that are taking much longer uh, to, to rehome. Uh, but that can be for various reasons and you're looking for a specific type of home in some cases. Uh, Amber, a beautiful lurcher that we've had here since uh, November 21 as an example and she's seen well over a hundred other dogs come and go while she's been here waiting for her uh, next home. Um, so yes, definitely a trend of certain behavioural issues coming through but my uh, kennels team worked tirelessly and we still managed to successfully rehome uh, hundreds of dogs uh, each each year uh, because they work on the training and they work on those uh, before they go back out. That's excellent. That's really good. So, um, and of course, a, a charity such as the Fern Animal Sanctuary cannot exist without raising funds. And I see that you are going to be uh, retracing as a fundraising event, retracing the route that the Fern Animals took from their original location near Shaftesbury to your current to the current location. It's a walk of some forty six miles. Yes, um, and, and this is one of those things where I was just chatting with a colleague a couple of hours ago. This is one of those things where I'm looking back now thinking this was a great idea in spring when I thought about it. And as it approaches, it starts tomorrow, I'm wondering just what I was thinking at the time um, uh, to, to take this on. So um, I thought of an annual CEO challenge. That's great. I put it out there to the rest of the team and various ideas came through um, and uh, this one was this one was selected. So starting tomorrow, I will be setting off from the Fern Gates in front of Fern Park uh, at around about noon, there, there or thereabouts, and hopefully arriving 46 miles later sometime Wednesday afternoon here at the sanctuary uh, in in Wombrook in Chard. Hopefully, that's the plan. That's the plan. It'll take me about 26, 27 hours, I, I, I should think. Um, and like I say, great idea three months ago. Now that it's about to start tomorrow, I, I am wondering if it was such a great idea, but let's see. <laughs> I feel very courageous of you. So um, you, you, this will be a non-stop walk, obviously, if you're planning on, on doing it in, in a matter of well, 24 hours or just over 24 hours. I will be able to get a few hours rest overnight. Um, and that's been kindly donated by the Eastbury Hotel in Sherbourne, who um, I will arrive at Sherbourne sometime late tomorrow night. Rest there for just a few hours before setting off very early on Wednesday. Kevin Hodges, 
CEO of the Fern Animal Sanctuary. And Kevin has told me that he completed his walk. He did it in 20 hours and he has so far raised just under £2,000. If you would like to donate, then have a look at the Fern Animal Sanctuary website to find out how. In the June edition of the BB Magazine podcast, we're featuring three interviews with local antiques dealers who've recently appeared on national television. Last week, I spoke to Craig Warden of the Sherbourne Antiques Market, and in this episode, we're featuring Karen Speed and her husband, Jez, who are the joint owners of Molecula, an established business which operates from the old yarn mills in Sherbourne. They took part in a recent episode of Salvage Hunters, which follows North Wales antiques dealer Drew Pritchard. I called at Molecular a few weeks ago to see what they had on offer. I picked a rather rainy, blustery day to come down to the old yarn mills in Sherborne to meet up with a couple of the antiques dealers down here. And, and the first on the list is Karen Speed from Molecular. Good morning, Karen. Thank you for having me. Good morning. And I'm sorry it is so rainy for you. Um, but, you know, welcome to our cosy pad. Well, this is really delightful. It's not exactly what you'd expect to find in an old industrial unit in Sherborne. It's, how can we describe it? It's all decked out as a, a, an antique shop, but with a, an emphasis on the presentation, really. You, you clearly made an effort in that direction. Yeah, it's for, for us, it's really, really important we, that we actually lay things out, you know, for people to, to look at and to sort of visualise it in their homes. So where possible, we try and do room sets um, with lighting and the furniture and rugs and uh, just to give it a really homely feel. And I think that really helps. And tell me a little bit about Molecular. You've been here since 2009, I think you said? 2009, yeah, it's been quite so. And we've gone through a lot of changes over that time. We had one unit and it was completely empty, as an old industrial building would be. And we gradually sort of put mezzanine floors in. And then a couple of years ago, the next unit came up beside us and we said to the landlord, right, can we take that on as well? He was chuffed, so we knocked through and now we've got over 4,000 square feet of space. It's amazing, actually, in a, in a place like this, because this used to be for people who remember the old Marglass factory in Sherborne going back years and years. This used to be the processing part of Marglass, and they used to turn the glass marbles into fibre in this particular part of the building. Anyway, things have moved on a lot since then. So tell us a little bit about your background, Karen. What brought you into antiques in the first place? Oh, crikey. I ran an antiques magazine for most of my, well, from my 20s, I guess, onwards. Decided to go out on my own. Thought I could make a job of it. 20 years later, I was still running the antiques magazine. So I got to go all over the West Country, visit some fantastic dealers. And at the same time, we were buying and selling, not on this scale, but we've always had a passion for antiques and and, and modern design, which is what we do. Um, Modern design meaning 20th century design. So it's that period. Probably, actually, you know, antiques right up to mm, 1970s. Which has become a lot more trendy, hasn't it? I, I suppose maybe 20, 30 years ago, the people would be quite scratchy about that. Antiques didn't, uh, well, antiques ended in the early part of the 20th century, I guess, didn't they? But uh, that's changed a lot, hasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, antiques, you know, are 100 years old. That's, that's, that's what it's all about. And we used to go to antique fairs um, with this sort of mid-century 1950s, 1960s look and the looks we would get from some of the antique dealers. It's sort of like, my goodness, you know, I grew up with this stuff and, and, it, and it was funny, we kind of felt that we were a little bit ahead of our time um, but now, of course, it's never been more popular. 
And we're seeing things, and indeed you have things here from, I would guess, from the 70s. Is that is that right? You've yeah. certainly got some quite contemporary-looking yeah. furniture around. Predominantly, um, I would say it's 60s. But the beauty of it is, is a lot of it comes from sort of Denmark, Sweden, Italy. Obviously, the antique side of things is very much an English thing. So we've got a right mix of items across across the world, really. And is Sherbourne your home turf? Are you an outsider, Karen? Well, no, I was born actually in Somerset. <laughs> so so from that point of view, I am an outsider. But no, I've been here, as, you, as I've said, for many, many years. And I, I live in Dorset. I have worked in Dorset all my life. Yeah, this is home. And the business as it currently exists, are you open to the public and trade or is this just a trade? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we have traders that come in. We have interior designers that pop in. Um, the nicest thing is that we are open to the public and we do get a lot of people from Dorset come in and have a look around and they are equally as shocked as you were at what we had in here and how it's laid out so it's been really nice and we do have open weekends so that sort of helps boost you know the footfall. But I imagine quite a lot of your trade these days is online as well. Absolutely absolutely I mean everything that we have furniture wise is pretty much online but then you can't do everything so we're quite selective Um, we send an awful lot to the states still but it's lovely that people can come in here and sort of you know buy the smaller more decorative items and actually you know come in and buy sideboards and lighting It, it really has opened our eyes up to how many people on our doorstep love what we do. A lot of people are, are really exploiting the, the growth of online, and I guess COVID did a certain amount to, to boost that, didn't it? What sort of percentage would you say is now online sales versus in person? Oh, that's a tricky one, because we've only really, over the last couple of years, decided to sort of say, OK, look, we are, we are here, we are open. I mean, we're sat here all the time, you know, Monday to Friday, sometimes weekends. It's nicer than my home, to be quite honest, which is why we spend so much time here. So I would have said a good 70% is probably still online. But, we, ch- you know, we want to change that. It's lovely to see people come in and they want to touch the items. And I, that's how I feel. I'd be very dubious about buying things online. I want to go and sit in it or I want to go and touch the thing. Um, and it's very difficult sometimes to also gauge the scale of an item online. And where do you tend to acquire things from? I mean, if you watch programmes like Salvage Hunters, for example, on television, Drew Pritchard tends to go off all over the continent from time to time, picking up things which he can't find in this country. Is that your style or where do you go buying? Prior to Brexit, we used to be out all the time. We had busman's holidays, so we were out four or five times a year. Denmark, Sweden, Germany, France, wherever we could go. It was an absolute joy. That has completely changed, which is a, a, a real shame for us. So it's, it's totally changed the way we run our business. So it means we have to buy more in the UK. But of course, the downside of that is that everybody's fighting for the same things and you don't get the variety you get from travelling abroad. That's interesting. So the, the paperwork, presumably the bureaucracy, Horrendous. just makes it not worthwhile doing that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you pay 20% tax on any single thing you bring back into the country on the the level and the scale that we would buy of course and you don't that's just going to pr- push the profit margin right down through the ground and and sadly that would pass it on to our clients which we don't really want to do so 
by having to be a bit more savvy. And what's the plans for the future? I mean, uh, this is this is lovely. I mean, I, I don't know what you where you go from here though. What's what's the plan? Well, we could always knock through and get another unit. Of course, there is that. <laughs> we could take over the whole yarn mills, but no, we're we're quite happy where we are. We want to see the turnover of the stock. That's really important for us because it means you know this isn't this isn't a museum. This is this is somewhere where we want to illustrate how lovely you can buy. Um, pieces for your home that aren't brand new you know they're not being mass produced these are quality items that have stood the test of time and therefore you get the quality as well well we're just going to wander around the shop and the first thing that's grabbing me this isn't easy to describe really they're they're hanging pyramid shaped uh, items and they have an oriental suggestion to them but tell us karen what are they well, uh, they're lanterns. I've never seen anything quite like them. They've, they've, they've got the massive tassels on the bottom, which are amazing. And as soon as I saw them, I thought, crikey, they are so boudoir. You know, they have got a nice bit of age to them. They are what they are. They can be lit. Um, that's something that we specialise in. Um, my husband is a lighting restorer. And, and they're just a little bit outrageous. They're very, they're, they're certainly not typical of what we would normally buy. But then having said that, when you look around you'll see that we have a very eclectic taste. So they fit in a treat. Okay, and just across from the lanterns, if that's what we decided they were, there's some quite modern-looking lounge furniture, I suppose it would be, Karen, is that right? It's a sofa and three armchairs, which wouldn't look out of place in a, a sort of modern London flat, really, would it? It's a little bit sort of something from The Incredibles, isn't it? That big, curved, beautiful sofa and actually matching chair. This came from Sweden, so this is from a previous trip. Um, but to have that kind of, uh, that curved back and the same on the chair is very, very rare. Um, it's called a Trensum sofa and um, it's sprung, it's so comfortable. I mean, you go to somewhere well, I won't name them, sofa companies, and you sit in any of their sofas and they are absolutely horrendous and you pay a fortune. This is a fraction of that price and it is as comfy as you as you could ever imagine. It's really, really lovely. And what period are we looking at here? We're talking 1960s. 60s, mm. right. Yeah. Okay. All yeah. right, let's wander on. And the next bit that we're just wandering into is a much more traditional feel to it. It looks more like an antique shop, Karen. Uh, we've got lots of display cabinets full of all sorts of curios and well is this Georgian furniture I would say yeah there's a little bit of everything in here actually Um, yes it is traditional furniture but it's things like these used to be cabinets the cabinets of curiosities which I've absolutely spent hours and hours putting together I had great fun Um, these were you know originally would have been sort of solicitors bookcases so they are kind of up and over um, but they make great display cases. And candlesticks and chandeliers and an old globe I see up there and some antlers. Behind yeah. us, we have a, a very large bird in a case. Well, you wouldn't get it in the back of the car, that's for sure. It's huge. Uh, so he's from 1930s. Sweden. And I, again, fell in love with him. He didn't come in the box. We had him on the back of the van when we came back from Sweden and managed to buy the case from another dealer in Sherborne. And he fits perfectly. You couldn't have got it more perfect, could you? You haven't had to clip his wings. No, I haven't, thank goodness. (laughs) Well, the striking feature about this room really is is the lighting. And 
how can we describe it? We've got a mixture of um, table lamps and hanging lights, chandeliers, lamp standards, I suppose you would call those, and everything in between, really. So what's the attraction to lighting? Well, let's face it, it's one of the most important things in your room. If you get the lighting wrong, the room doesn't feel right. And, and we like cosy. Hence the lighting is down on the lower part because it's a much darker room, so it really can show off what we have for sale. And, um, you know, our lighting goes from sort of 1970s, that great big hall, glitzy thing in the corner there, which is chandelier, is absolutely beautiful. Came out of a 1970s um, pad. And then you go into the middle here, you've got sort of French... Um, petito lighting you've got alabaster chandeliers 1960s it's a, it's a real passion of ours beautiful condition do you have to do very much work to most of the things you bring in as little as possible because the beauty is in the age of the piece clean it make it ready for your home uh, but never ever ever over restore which leads us on to Another part of your life, because you have recently appeared in the Salvage Hunters, the Restorers series. Yeah. How did that come about? Because it's, it's a fascinating series. Anybody that's not seen it, it, it just shows the process of taking items that have been acquired by various dealers and not restoring them would be the word, but not, not putting them back to original condition, but just making them into functional items that somebody will want to buy. I guess that's a fair way of putting it, is it? Yeah, it's just been great fun. It's never something I wanted to do, TV, ever. Um, and I wasn't sure that I wanted to do it for quite some time. But actually, as the series went on and on and on, it was great. I've travelled the country, just met some fabulous dealers, met some fabulous restorers. And it's a, it's a really lovely programme. You know, it's, it's great to go to somebody, take them, you know, this weird and wonderful item, leave it with them have a chat about what you want to do, go back X amount of weeks later, find out what they've done and, and present it so that people can, you know, enjoy the programme. Well, it makes you a great television. So there's a new series coming up, I believe. Yes, Are you featuring in this? Yep, yep. Oh, yes. Give us a clue what sort of item we might expect uh, to see. Oh, can't say too much, but there will be definitely some oddities, which is seems to be quite typical of what I bring to some of the restorers, some British classics. Some rather large British classics, and that's all I can say. We'll look out for that. Karen, thank you very much for having us here today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for coming. Really appreciate it. My thanks again to Karen Speed of Molecular, and we'll have the final of those three interviews with George Holtby in next week's episode. And finally, in this episode of the BV Magazine podcast, Jenny speaks to John Farrand, CEO of the Guild of Fine Food. In this month's BV Online magazine, the CEO of the Gillingham-based Guild of Fine Food, John Farrand, wrote an article about last month's Farm to Fork Summit, held at number 10 Downing Street. In it, he takes the government to task, criticising the fact that a significant sector of the food industry, the independent growers and sellers, had not been invited. He estimates that some 150,000 independent retailers belonging to the Guild of Fine Food and the Association of Convenience Stores alone, were not able to make their opinions heard because they had not been invited. I began by asking John what the Guild of Fine Food is. The Guild of Fine Food um, really has been in existence for over 40 years now in, in several different guises perhaps, but it, it really sets out as an organisation to bring 
together those uh, who make worthy, excellent food and drink and those who sell those products. So you've got producers, so small jam makers, olive oil makers, whatever, from across the world. But our retail audience are delis, farm shops uh, and, and the food halls, um, of which in this area of the country, down here in the southwest, there are plenty of very good independent retailers. We bring those people together through various activities. We, we ourselves publish uh, a monthly trade magazine. Uh, we run training courses that help people improve their knowledge about the products they're selling, in particular cheese. Uh, we run some exhibitions, both consumer and trade. And we also run uh, two accreditation schemes, one uh, which is called Great Taste, which is a sort of black and gold logo, and our panel of judges award products uh, no award, one, two or three star, and also feedback to the uh, producers. And on that's how they... very well known, of course, isn't it? Yes, I mean, that, that is our most visible thing, uh, Jenny. Uh, the Great Taste Awards, people will recognise the black and gold logos, and, and the consumer now buys into it as a, as a, as a thing to trust when, when out sort of shopping. Uh, although originally it was set up as very much as a trade initiative to help food and drink producers improve. Um, but we also run the World Cheese Awards, which, as the name would suggest, uh, is an enormous cheese uh, competition which takes place once a year and moves around Europe, um, a little bit like Eurovision, to a different city uh, every year. So um, there are activities, um, and at the heart of it, I guess, is, is the membership. Uh, we have 1,200 members uh, split between producers and retailers, but we also talk to the wider trade really of so we're talking regularly to sort of between 12 and 13,000 small food and drink businesses. So you're a well-established organization with reasonable clout. Yeah and that 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 clout and that voice I guess has, has meant that we now are we're on various DEFRA steering groups um, I'm on the food and drink sector council so we have an opportunity now to put across the issues the concerns uh, the thoughts of, of the smaller end of food and drink, and I mean smaller in a kind way, not in a, an, as a put-down. So we represent those sorts of businesses, whether they're retail or producers, now at a sort of government level. And, and, and whilst it's good to have that voice there, sometimes it's not heard or listened to. <laughs> Now, um, let's talk about this this recent, number 10's recent Farm to Fork Summit uh, back in May, uh, which was a response to the NFU's repeated call for the government to tackle the issue of food security in the UK. The Guardian called it, uh, and I quote, no more than a PR stunt that failed to tackle key issues. What's your feeling on that? Um, I... Uh... I have a, I have a, I need to be quite balanced about this. At least they did it. Um, the very fact that they had this summit uh, means that some of us are making enough of a noise and being enough of an irritant that they need to confront it. There is clearly an issue in this, in this country with food and drink inflation. We can't start pointing fingers perhaps at why that is. But my concern about that summit was that it didn't address the whole food and drink industry yet again. And I used the line uh, in my piece, those in power only, um, only consult with those in power. And, and actually, at our end of food and drink is where the innovation and, and, and the nimbleness, if that's a word, and the sharp thinking is. 
and, and that's what's going to help solve this problem, uh, not this, um, just this immediate problem of um, energy crisis and, and, and costs going up and, and inflation, but also the wider issues that the government wants to address, which is obesity, a lack of education about food and drink, um, simple ingredients listings which are, are better for us, uh, the local pound and circulating the pound better so that local producers sell to local shops that sell to local customers instead of all the money going up into the City of London through major PLCs and the major retailers. So the, our end of food and drink could contribute a lot. Yes, I know that most food and drink is sold in supermarkets. I'm, I'm not a fool, but that doesn't mean that, that good ideas and good thought and, and change can't come from, from the smaller food and drink businesses. So why do you think uh, no one from the independent food sector was invited, I mean, including uh, yourself as the uh, CEO of the Guild? Yeah, I mean, yes, you're right, Jenny. It wasn't just us. There wasn't a, a representative from the Association of Convenience Stores, a, a, an enormous organisation with over 100,000 retailers. I, I don't think it was malicious. I just think, yet again, it's proof that we, we, we're not thought of almost we weren't even on the agenda i've since been at another meeting on the food and drink to sector council uh food and drink sector council sorry with therese coffee the, the minister or the secretary of state actually sorry um and i asked this very question i said why why weren't independents represented and i mean the answer was 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 a little sort of short and oh, there were wholesalers there that did represent your sector well that wasn't really true and i the problem is, I think, is that these people only see big business. They want to hang out with big business because they're the people that employ the most people, they think. They're the ones who generate the most money, they think. But our, our sector is, is, in its own right, very powerful. It's just across many more smaller stores. But those people you've just been talking about, of course, are the ones who have powerful lobbies, the, the power of the lobbyists. So... Uh, and I assume that the independent sector of food producers and growers does not have that clout. You're absolutely right. Yeah, um, they have they have teams of people lobbying government and putting points across and making sure that the right messages come out of big retail. And uh, we, you're right, we don't have that sort of money or budget uh, to get the message out there. But um, all we can keep doing is is having a say and and. Um, um, that's why you know, I like to listen to what food producers have got to say, what the retailers have got to say. I sit on something called the Independent Retail Confederation, which is a, a quango of quangos with other high street organisations represented like butchers and hairdressers and record shops and jewellers. And we, we, we just have to keep getting our point across and reminding them that we're there. And, and the independent retail needs supporting. Um, it's so much healthier for our economy than shopping at one of the major supermarkets. Now, the, the, the summit lasted just one morning. Um, long enough for such a major issue, in your view? <laughs> no, it's a very good point. Uh, no, no, I mean, it, it, I, I do find it incredible that Henry Dimbleby wrote the National Food Strategy, a government-funded initiative, I hasten to add, so they spent lots of money on it. It's, it's a huge body of work. I, I, it must be over 500 pages, a very thick thing. And a lot of good work's gone into it. He wasn't at that summit, which I, I found that more extraordinary than the fact that the Guild of Fine Food weren't there, to be honest with you. But there is lots more to do. 
And uh, we're, what we're saying to the Secretary of State is you know, that needs to be the first one of many. We need to keep doing these things to solve the immediate problem within food and drink and then address the longer-term issues with food and drink in this country. But there was no uh, suggestion uh, as yet that this would become an annual event, which is what the NFU and I'm sure you and others would like it to be. No, there wasn't any suggestion, but um, I think watch this space. I'm hoping that the pressure will be such that um, it will become a more inclusive event and an annual event. And uh, Therese Coffey might um, actually uh, become aware of your existence, you mean? Oh, she is now, yes, because uh, <laughs> I, made, I made the point to her in person at a meeting. So, uh, which, um, so yeah, hopefully, hopefully not just us, I hasten to add, but others, as I say, should be included in that meeting to truly represent food and drink and how it's sold. So although you don't have the lobbying clout of the big producers and growers, um, you would hope that you can have an impact and your voice will be heard? Yeah, I would hope so. And, and I think it's, it's, it's right and proper that um, uh, the very biggest and the very smallest are, are, are heard. Um, and as I've said, that is where the clever thinking is, I think, from those small business owners who are more in touch with the issues, more in touch with paying their bills and seeing the energy costs go up, know what it's like trying to get hold of staff, they're far more aware of it than the big bosses at the big retailers and, 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 and the big food manufacturers who are, let's face it, highly paid folk who sit in offices in, in, in London often. So that's, yeah, I mean, we need to be heard. So in other words, it needs to be more of a truly democratic system. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, John, finally, self-sufficiency in food is a critical issue for any country. Uh, the UK stands n uh, uh, currently at no more than 60%, uh, and uh, that's a figure that may well drop. Uh, is that issue being given sufficient attention, and was it tackled in the summit, to your knowledge? Uh, I don't know if it was tackled in, in, in the summit. Again, the way in which our end of food and drink makes food and sells food lends itself to being more self-sufficient. Um, educating people about seasonality and when not to eat things and when you can eat things would, would help that as well. Um, so we ate things in season. I'm acutely aware that some of this is romantic and people will say, well, not everyone can afford to sort of shop in that way and, and buy better things that are from the UK necessarily and, and we need cheap food. But I don't always that there is that of course but I don't always agree with that I think people could shop better and cook better to and, and still spend the same amount of money I think that 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 is true but to, to address your point yeah it's tricky because we we represent delicatessens and, and delicate the definition of a delicatessen is that it brings the best of the, of the world's flavors to a shop so inherently I don't necessarily advocate us eating all British things because um, I think it's actually rather good to, to enjoy things from where they should be made and the characteristics of the food are sometimes individual to a region, a territory, the terroir as the French would call it. So we can't always eat everything from the UK but we could certainly be uh, eating primary products like meat and, and, and eggs. I, I do get a bit, a bit sad when things like that are imported. And we felt it was best to leave it at that, since talking about all the broader issues would have taken up the rest of the day.
Well, that's it for episode two of the BV Magazine podcast for June 2023. Join us again next week for episode three. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Terry Bennett. And until next time, it's goodbye from me, Jenny Devitt.